I'm Catherine Arndt, the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. Welcome to today's episode, brought to you by the VLGA, your councillor support network and the national broadcaster on all things local government. Welcome to another edition of VLGA Connect. In conversation with today, the Deputy Commissioner at IBAC, David Wolfe, a regular guest on the program. And David, great to see you again. Indeed. Likewise, Chris, and hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. The The timing is rather fortuitous given the news this week. We had planned this conversation not being aware that the Moira Shire Council Commission of Inquiry would be dropping this week. And we've, we've got a couple of really important topics to discuss. But can we get that one out of the way first? Because there are implications out of this report for IBAC. A number of uh, matters have been referred to your organisation. First, I start off and say it's a really important report particularly for the municipality and the ratepayers and residents of, of Moira. Um, it certainly identifies some quite a lot of issues that have occurred over a number of years. And there is a, a mountain of work to be done to restore the community's com, uh, confidence back in, in the council. So um, I don't um, shy away from the work that needs to be done to do exactly that. In terms of the, uh, the findings of the report, um, I encourage people to read it if they haven't. Um, it, it is interesting, and it's and and, and I think um, the issues that are raised uh, uh, are not unique, and they've been um, identified in many councils previously. So I think from that perspective, it's a good read to have an understanding of what what can go awry in a council, and to be aware of that. And then, of course, there's two matters that have been referred to us um, from that report, which we're at the moment assessing to see whether there's any uh, additional involvement from this organisation or what the, uh, the status of those matters might be. So just to be clear about the process from the IBAC point of view, the matters have been referred, but now you do your own assessment about whether there's any action required from, from you. That's right, exactly. So we'll assess whether the, um, the corrupt conduct threshold is met first, and then if that is met, then we'll determine whether we investigate or refer to another body to take uh, action as, as deemed necessary. And that process is underway at the moment. Are there any early observations or conclusions that you can make about some of those matters? I mean, some of them are pretty emotive in the community, such as uh, the disposal of asbestos-contained materials. Very alarming little piece that uh, in the report you know, sets out uh, what, what occurred, but effectively the, the community have already borne an expense for that decision within council in terms of the remediation works. Um, important to understand who the decision makers were in that process um, and again we'll look at that from a corruption perspective and then if it doesn't reach that threshold then determine about what's the best course of action to actually deal with with that decision making process uh, we, we hear a bit from time to time about limited resources at ibac to deal with matters and a lot on your plate this obviously just adds to the workload what sort of time frame do you see these matters being dealt with so you're right we, we, we are in receipt of a lot of issues uh, on a daily basis our assessment timeframes are normally quite sharp, so we'll have this turned around within a matter of a week or so and make that determination and we'll let the community know um, what that outcome is and particularly where, if, if we're going to consider it and, and, and do work on it or whether we're going to refer it to another body. We, we might leave that there because the report is being unpacked on other programs, uh, including the Roundup podcast and, of course, uh, uh, TGU from VLGA uh, Connect, but good to get your 
insights on that, David. And I appreciate there's probably not a lot that you can say at uh, at this point. Um, what we did want to talk about today are a couple of key reports that have come out from IBAC in recent times. Let's start with the one about donations and lobbying. This has got broader implications even beyond Victoria, which we might uh, which we might touch on. Why is this such an important issue for IBAC? Indeed, a really important issue for both state and local government. Um, we're talking about two facets of our political democracy, which, uh, if not conducted transparently and fairly, have uh, capacity to impact on decision making. Um, which could be to the detriment of, of the, uh, the broader community. So it's really important that the, uh, this piece of work was uh, pulled together and, and published. So I think um, if we look at it in the two sections, donation for, for, for a start, um, that's a piece of work that um, we've been talking about in the local government sector for quite some time. As you probably recall, the 2020 legislation that proposed some reforms and that was actually stripped out and it didn't mm. actually find its way into the legislation. And some of those um, deficiencies are, are the things we're calling out in the donations framework for local government. I think the really important one for us is centralising the donation reporting um, framework. So at the moment, it's that disparate framework where donations are reported uh, by candidates to the council and then it's collated uh, back into the minister and then through to the local government inspectorate. And then there's the administrative function to find out whether people are compliant or not and action taken against those that are. It's a really convoluted system. Mm. So we're for a centralisation of that. Uh, and there's you know, some options already existing around it's particularly state level, how it's conducted. Um, we think that will be a good reform. And then aligned with that is real-time reporting of donations. And that's something that I've been quite passionate about as well. I think it's really important that, that a voter has an awareness of who is supporting a candidate financially um, before they cast their vote. And I think um, um, that that transparency is critical to a, a well-functioning democracy. This real-time reporting you're talking about, are you talking about at all levels of government, including local government? Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And is that is that happening in any other jurisdiction or would that be a first? There's, there's hybrid models of it. Um, at the moment, um, a lot of the technical um, barriers mean that the real time is uh, a day or two or a week after elections are occurring. And my view is that um, the, the major benefit is having that information available to the voter at the time they cast their vote. So right. um, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty significant reform and, and it's one that Victoria could really lead the way on. And I'm assuming that would look like some sort of online dashboard that's updated in real time that people can check whenever they have the need yeah yeah and particularly but um you know a lot of the voting now is not on that particular day it's um you know voting yeah. weeks beforehand so it means the information needs to be updated but allowances for um donations to be received up until a certain point in time but again um one of the reservations we hear is that um you know, people want to donate right up until the election day my submission would be what do you need those funds for? Your campaign's already been conducted. So where is though where are those suggestions sitting in terms of their status at the moment? So they're sitting with government. Um, the the report in that was um, uh, was tabled late last year, I think uh, November last year, October. Sorry, um, the government's broadly in principle accepted those uh, recommendations, and now working through um, with the about how they might implement. So there's a lobbying side to this as well. Um, what sorts of observations are you making there? Lobbying, again, uh, has that um, ability to influence decision makers and often um, uh, it's, it's more concentrated in the state government area and certainly on bigger proposals or um, issues where 
um, proponents of those proposals have the resources to engage lobbyists to try and get their point across. And again, it's really important part of the democratic system because the technical and complex information uh, on these proposals often can only be delivered by people with that expertise. So mm. effectively, lobbying. But it has implications at, at local government level. Um, and, and what we found is that the, um, the framework to ensure that that is transparent and fair is, is it's largely non-existent. So, uh, for instance, a person might be a developer who meets with a councillor and starts to talk about the development that they may ultimately be deciding on. The record keeping and management of that is largely non-existent, and that's something that we'd like to see some significant reforms. Uh, I'm assuming some of these observations or reforms have been informed by what you, as an organisation, have gathered in the Operation Sandon matter, which we're yet to see the report of. Of course, would I be right there? Yeah, indeed. So um, some of that was out of uh, our investigative activity. Um, some of it's done from our research and our comparisons with interstate jurisdictions, but you're right, um, investigation activity certainly points us towards that. And, and on Operation Sandon, look, I know the sector is um, uh, still waiting to see uh, that report. As most people will know, it's been tied up in uh, litigation for quite some time. And it's been important litigation. It's actually tested out a, a, a provision in our legislation, which we now have clarified with the courts, which, is, which has been useful but it's added delay to this really important piece of work. But I can tell you that we're working furiously in here at the moment to try and have it completed and have it published in the in the coming months. Um, I suspect not the only uh, report to be caught up in that sort of process. Indeed, we had a number of reports in the same space, but that's that that, that pipeline's now freed up. Yeah. Okay. Anything more you want to say on donations and lobbying before we move on to another very important issue? No, I think that that's good. I just encourage people, if they're interested in it, um, to go to the, our website. The reports uh, are freely available there, and it's got some really good um, and, and relevant aspects to local government. I think once you get that government response about what's going to happen next, it would be good to then sort of talk through what is in fact going to be put in place and particularly how it's going to impact on, on local government. Indeed. Well, you're right, Chris, and, and um, particularly around donations, if, if there's reforms to be put in place, you know, the clock's ticking for 2024. That'll come around yeah. really quickly. Um, the other report, uh, going back a little while, is the Perceptions of Corruption Survey, and there's some um, insights and some findings here that I think are of particular interest to local government. And against the backdrop of uh, what we've been hearing and reading this week, it's it's probably more timely than it may have been. What did you survey here? How did you go about getting this uh, perceptions piece done? So that's a really important piece of work that we've done previously. And um, uh, again, when you're doing surveys over a period of time, the data is incredibly informative to track those trends. So this piece of work is surveying um, local government employees uh, to understand their perception of corruption within that sector and where the risks of corruption might arise. So a really important piece of work to inform uh, senior leaders, managers and councillors in the sector because it's effectively the workforce telling you where the problems might lie. So mm. uh, it's a really important piece of work. And I think there's, um, there's, for me, there was three really important pieces to come out of it. And firstly was that the uh, workforce understand there is a corruption risk and, and corruption does occur. It was interesting that um, the numbers that perceived corruption within the sector had risen quite significantly, but not in their actual local government. Right. It was, always believed to be in another place. And that, that right. might be virtue of the publicity of some of the matters that we're looking into might create that perception. But still a rise in people believing there was corrupt activity occurring within their, their council, albeit to a smaller degree. So workforce thinkers exist. 
Where they think it exists is around the perennial issues of procurement and recruitment. And recruitment is, was really prevalent. Um, and again, when I talk into council uh, groups, I talk about um, the recruitment issue around cronies and nepotism, um, but also around um, often there's recruitment activity conducted and there's just not a, 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 a suitable level of transparency. So it creates that perception of corruption when it might not exist. So a great remedy for that is to be as transparent as possible in that recruitment activity. Is a, is a, is a good example of that uh, the current issue at Geelong where the government has felt there needed to be more transparency around the CEO recruitment process and they've installed monitors? And I've got a follow-up question to this, David. Um, I think there's uh, what I'm talking about is generally when the workforce um, have, have concerns about uh, either internal or external recruitment or promotion and um, not understanding why a particular person got the role. I think the Geelong uh, example might be at the, the further end of the spectrum that needs greater intervention. And, and so my follow-up question was, and, and this goes a bit to some of the Moira stuff, around whether there's still uh, confusion or whether there's any confusion out there about which authority deals with which issue, because the inspectorate's dealing with some of those nepotism, cronyism issues, uh, the corruption is IBAC, um, and there's a mix of stuff in the Moira report, isn't there? There is indeed. And I guess that's a really good example of having an integrity system where everyone's got a distinct lane, which we operate in. Sometimes there is crossover. I often say this when I'm talking to people in the sector, that there ought not be any concern about which body to go to or to raise an issue. We will internally find the best agency to actually investigate and, and deal with the, um, the issue that's been raised. And we might do it jointly or we might um, we might refer it to a particular agency who will operate um, in isolation. But it's important to note that there is a system to deal with the range of issues. Um, you know, often it might be a really technical financial issue that we might need Vargo to come in and assist with the, you know, the financial performance or financial auditing or, or um, vice versa. It might need um, a unique um, aspect of the Local Government Act, which is LGI's role. And, of course, the Ombudsman is another actor in that, uh, that, that system. Yep. Um, yep. What do the results of this corruption, perceptions of corruption survey tell us, particularly about local government and how it sits uh, compared to other sectors? A lot of similarity to the state sector. Um, the same risks are identified. Um, anytime there's transfer of public funds to the private sector, that creates a risk. And if the systems and processes aren't sound, and if the culture of the organisation isn't sound, then there's a risk of uh, improper or corrupt conduct occurring. Um, I think that one of the most important findings out of this survey was the, uh, the high percentage of people that said that they would report corrupt conduct to their immediate manager. And that's really encouraging. Mm. The issue is the manager's got to know what to do. So uh, what, there's nothing worse uh, than a, 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 an employee acting properly and reporting that corrupt conduct and then it not being acted on, not being taken seriously, not being followed through. So we're talking to managers about understanding what their roles and responsibilities are in advance. So um, having that awareness and making sure they're acting on those reports. So I think it's really, really important. Um, yeah. And one of the other things that came out of it too is, is what stops people from reporting. Um, and one of them was, of course, that their report wouldn't be taken seriously. And the other one was, of course, around anonymity. So confidentiality of, of their own personal involvement. Um, and again, that comes back to having an understanding about what avenues are available and what mechanisms are in place to protect those that report corrupt conduct. Right. The, one of the side effects of talking about these issues I put to you, David, is that um, we often then start to hear from 
people in the sector who are doing the right thing. And a, a recent example, uh, LG Pro came out very strongly and appropriately, in my view, to call for um, a, a look at the legislative regime that's dealing with councillor behaviour. But it gives rise to the point that it's dealing with a minority. Again, you're talking about corruption, donations, lobbying, etc. Do you think it's fair to, to still make the observation that the behaviour that raises concerns is happening in the minority of the sector? And what, what do you say to that? So we're talking about a couple of different things here. We're mm -hmm. talking about a corrupt and improper conduct, and then we've got behavioural issues, so mm -hmm. conduct. What I would say is that the survey tells us that um, the workforce perceive corrupt conduct across the range, the entire range of councils in Victoria. Mm. Um, and where it is happening in particular pockets, and we know it's happening because of investigative activity, um, to think that it's not replicated in other areas of the state, I think would be foolhardy. But, so mm. that's what I'd say in relation to that. Yeah. Um, in respect to what LG Pro came out and said, um, I think that largely relates to conduct or behavioural issues. And um, I think that echoes frustrations from the professional sector around the, um, the level of behaviour uh, of um, particular individuals in a number of councils across the state. And that, and that frustration is converting into um, you know, the inability of council to go about their business because they're dealing with conduct issues. And, and you and I have seen, I don't know how many iterations of a, of a council conduct framework in local government in our time, many, many iterations. Yes. I think what the VLGA are calling for is a, a, a look at that to see if there's, again, reforms that can be made to make it more efficient and effective in dealing with, with, with those problems when they arise. Do you support those suggestions broadly that have been made? I had a conversation only yesterday with a very experienced local government person, and it was along the lines of whether things are getting worse or not. There's always those conversations, you know, it never used to be this bad. Yeah. Um, what we landed on is that the, the types of behaviours are not new, um, but we do think it's more broadly uh, spread across the state, so there's more instances of it. So the degrees uh, is not as bad, but the instances are, are higher. Mm. So that means that um, I think there is a time um, to have a look at uh, whether the, the, you know, the frameworks that are in place are effective or not. Speaking of frameworks, New South Wales has announced uh, a new framework coming. I'm, I'm, I'm not clear on whether that's dependent on the current government getting re-elected or not, but have you looked at what they're proposing and how that sits against our framework? I haven't had a close look at it, Chris, but I, I've had a look at the drivers behind it and mm. look at the frequency of um, council issues arising in New South Wales. Again, it's on par with what's happening in Victoria. And again, um, there's a blend between corruption issues. Uh, one council in particular is you know, going through an inquiry around that relationship between developers and councillors. Yes. But there's many other councils that have issues around behaviour, even financial performance, one's under administration for that. So, again, there's a high level of councils that have come under scrutiny for their performance, and there's no doubt that the driver within the New South Wales government is to see what reforms can be made. Yes, you're right. There's a, there's a number of high-profile cases going on in New South Wales with ICAC and parliamentary inquiries. Um, while we're talking in the state, uh, recent developments uh, across in South Australia around campaign donation returns, this returns to our donations issue. Uh, I don't know about you, but I had a shudder when I saw what happened here with all of these councillors, 45 of them, uh, becoming um, uh, basically out of office for failing to uh, meet a legislative 
timeline, eerily similar to what happened in Victoria a few years back, David? Uh, 2016, when I was the Chief Municipal Inspector, we had the legislative reform around uh, the requirement to sign uh, the Code of Conduct. We had 116 councils that failed to meet that legislative requirement, which means they were uh, to be out of office on a specified date. Mm. Uh, and because of that high number, the government took some action to rectify that through a legislative amendment. But what it said uh, to me then and what the South Australian experience says to me is, um, it's interesting because the argument at the time was there wasn't enough information provided, the administration didn't inform these people what they were required to do. Um, I looked at it from the other perspective around, it was a really important um, personal responsibility of the elected members. Um, they weren't aware of the law that existed around their um, role as, as councillors and they failed to meet it. And rather than point the finger at everyone else, um, our view was uh, it was important that they took personal responsibility. Uh, look, here's a question without notice that has just occurred to me. So you see these different regimes in different states. There's a, there's a hint of this in the Moira report about a lack of, um, and I'm paraphrasing, I guess, awareness of the way particular things worked in Victoria as opposed to other states. And we are seeing a lot more, I think, movement around the country, people within the local government sector more broadly. Is that a risk that someone needs to be mindful of how that gets managed holistically, do you think? We often talk about um, the, the differences between uh, local councils and neighbouring councils. I think it's really important to have a look around uh, the country and make sure to an extent possible there's harmonisation in the legislative frameworks for this tier of, of government. I think that's really important. So the donations and lobbying report, um, as I mentioned, we did that interstate comparison to see what the frameworks were in relation to that and tried to certainly pick out the better elements, but to a degree harmonise what we were suggesting with certainly New South Wales and Queensland. Um, the, the, the broader and uh, more consistent the legislative frameworks are around the country, I think the better for everyone. Well, uh, there's no shortage of uh, material to delve into with Tasmania and Western Australia also going uh, through reform processes at the moment. Um, David, that's been a, a terrific, wide-ranging and insightful conversation, as always. Uh, really enjoy speaking with you and uh, appreciate you coming on the program. Indeed. Thanks, Chris. And I'll see you when, um, when Sandon is tabled. Indeed. All right. Looking forward to it. David Wolfe, Deputy Commissioner at IBAC, our guest on VLGA Connect in conversation with today. 